0: The Old Testament reading today is from Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. It can be found in your pew Bible, in the Old Testament, page 720. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was boiled in the potter's hand and he worked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? Says the Lord, Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation of a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intend to bring on it. And at another moment, I may be declared concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, Not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a porter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. This is the Word of the
1: Lord Thanks be to God. I hope you remember me it's It has been a while. Uh, you know the good thing uh about being away or the interesting thing about being away is that you look forward to it and anticipate it, and in my case, I go to the same place every year, so I see it in my mind's eye, and I can't wait to get there and then uh, faster than you might think it's over. And uh, the good news for me, anyway, was that uh, within a few days of having to fly back, I was thinking, it's time to get to work, and I'm looking forward to seeing you, and uh, this morning confirms that. It's good to see you, and my thanks to Sam uh, for uh, doing a lot of preaching in my absence. I would like to focus our attention this morning on that Old Testament reading which Dorothy uh, read for us, uh, the reading from Jeremiah, and... The New Testament reading, which I'm about to read from Luke, uh, is not the focus of my sermon, but it very nicely illustrates what Jeremiah is drawing our attention to. And your Bible, I'm, I'm going to read from uh, Luke 14, uh, your Bible may have a little subheading just before this section, uh, verse, beginning with verse 25. And this, this was not written by Luke, but the, the, the subheading is the cost of discipleship. And as you are going to hear, the cost of discipleship is extraordinarily high. In fact, it is shockingly high. Even though we have heard these words before, it seems to me that when we hear them again, we are not prepared for the impact that these words have. To be a follower of Jesus Christ requires far more than most of us have ever imagined. So, uh, Luke 14, beginning with verse 25, now large crowds were traveling with him and he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The word of the Lord. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, in the year 2010, uh, a woman by the name of Marina Abramovich, uh she's an artist who was born in uh, Belgrade in 1947. So she's a young woman, and uh, she was born in in what was uh, at that time Yugoslavia. Uh, Marina Abramovich presented a work of art at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and she called this work of art "The Artist Is Present." And maybe some of you uh, will remember as I describe it what this uh, work of art was. Uh, The artist is present seems like a pretty uh, fitting description to me because what she did was to sit completely still and immobile in front of a table with an empty chair just across from her. And people who were visiting the Museum of Modern Art were invited to sit with her if they wished. And when they sat down, she would stare at them. And she did this for nearly 750 hours... Uh, Over a 10-week period, this was the middle of March to the the end of May, and some of the people who sat with her were moved to tears by the experience. Uh, Others found the experience difficult and upsetting, and still others didn't know what to make of it. I would have been in the last uh, category. Marina Abravovich, uh, in case you haven't uh, put this together yet, is uh, what is known as a performance artist. In fact, some people call her the grandmother of, of performance art. Uh, maybe the most famous person ever to pursue this kind of art, if that's what it is. Now, the reason I thought of uh, her this week, and I don't think of her very often, uh, uh, is that I, I read the story, uh, which you heard from the book of Jeremiah, and I immediately made this connection. Marina Abravovich is not, think about this, she is not the first performance artist in history. Many, if not all, of the Old Testament prophets engaged in these highly symbolic actions many centuries before Marina Abramovich came along. There are examples in uh, Isaiah and uh, Ezekiel. Those of you who've done Bible studies on those books will remember them. Uh, But Jeremiah, without a doubt, gave some of the most interesting and riveting performances ever. We sometimes remember the prophets for the words that they wrote. Isaiah, I would say, wrote some of the finest poetry in all of Hebrew literature. I'm guessing that most scholars would agree about that. But the truth is the prophets were more than preachers. And they were more than writers. They were actors as well. And they would draw attention to themselves or they would draw attention to something they did so that their message could be heard. Uh, I paged through the the uh, book of Jeremiah last week, and I counted no fewer than eleven examples. I may have missed one or two, but no fewer than eleven examples of of i mean what would you call this performance art may not be the right term, but but what uh, Jeremiah did was extraordinarily effective, and it drew attention to the message that God had given him to speak, and mostly he warned the people about the destruction that was going to come on uh, upon their tiny nation once. Uh, once he bought a, a very expensive piece of pottery and he gathered all of the, the leaders uh, together and then he, he smashed this, this uh, piece of pottery on the ground and he said, Pay attention because this is what God is going to do to our country. Right, And then uh, another time toward the end of the book, Jeremiah uh, suddenly became the prophet of hope which took everyone by surprise. Uh, because until that time, he had been known as the prophet of gloom and doom. And uh, what he did at the end uh, of his, his prophetic career was to buy real estate. Uh, with the armies of Babylon bearing down on, on Judah, w- with the real estate market in free fall, uh, Jeremiah went out and bought a field. And, and why? Because God had given him this unlikely message of hope when everyone else was giving in to despair and, and, and wondering what in the world would become of them, it was then that the prophet Jeremiah decided to make an investment. Now, we do this sort of thing with children all the time. We hold up an object during the children's sermon, and, and we ask children to uh, look at it and consider it, and, and we hold their attention in that way. And I don't know, maybe preachers would be far more effective today if they held up objects during the... Uh, uh, the sermon, uh, for the same reason. I mean, if I smashed a pot on the floor, I would have your attention. So it, sometimes words alone are not enough to say what needs to be said. In the reading we heard today, Jeremiah tells us that God directed him to the, the uh, house of a potter, and, and given how important pottery was in, in the ancient world, this must have been a common enough sight. All right, uh, unusual for us maybe, but not for them. And, And what Jeremiah did was to observe, and then he commented on what he observed. So maybe this wasn't performance art so much as it was an object lesson. He wanted us to look at what the potter was doing. And it was from the potter's work that he drew his conclusion. And his conclusion was this, can I not do with you, O house of Israel, can I not do with you just as the potter has done? So in other words, can I not start over and fashion something brand new out of you? And frankly, I, I, I think that's an extraordinary thought, and, and I wonder how much you've thought about that. What, what Jeremiah is telling us about God here is it was just extraordinary. I mean, God's work, or at least a big part of it, is to shape and form our lives. And to take a shapeless lump of clay and to make it into something useful. And not only that, something beautiful. Right? Take a good look at that clay, Jeremiah says to us, because that's you. And that's me. We are clay in his hands and we haven't always turned out the way God imagined that we would. And so sometimes he's going to decide to start over. And it may be painful, but the result is going to be beautiful, right and lovely, and worth far more than we can possibly imagine right now. You know, over the years I've worked with uh, quite a, a large number of church members, and almost all of them have been wonderful people, uh, hardworking, and uh, faithful, and generous, and and they have inspired me uh, again over the years. And and most days I feel so grateful that I have been able to do this work shoulder to shoulder with them. But here's the thing, and I need to be careful uh, with how I say this, but I'm determined to say it. Uh, Most of the people I have known over the years, all good church members, uh, have thought of themselves as pretty good people. Do you know what I mean? Decent people. They became involved in the church and they volunteered to serve on on, uh, committees and boards. Uh, Because they were hoping to grow in their faith, and and so they were basically good people who wanted to be better people. Uh, They didn't think that they needed much fixing, to be honest about it. Uh, They needed a little fine-tuning, just a little polishing maybe uh, here and there. Nothing major, please. Uh, A few people over the years, and and I, I thought this week as I put this together, maybe what I'm about to say has more to do with the kinds of churches I've, I've served over the years. But I think this is true generally. Very few people I have known over the years have thought of themselves as broken. In serious need of repair. Very few people have thought of themselves as major rebuilding projects. Uh, they came to church, and, and this is probably not fair, but I'm going to say it anyway. They came to church to round out what was already a full and satisfying life. For some of them, it was like taking a course in art history. Not really necessary, but oh, it adds so much to an already enjoyable life. Uh, one person said to me, this was on the day he, he, he joined the church, and he meant for this to sound really good. I don't think he realized how it sounded. He said, God has given me so much, I just want to give back a little. All right, other people, and, and this, this example won't surprise you, other people have taken exception to that prayer of confession, which we uh, read every single week at, at morning worship. And so they've come to me and they've said, Oh, do we really have to say those words? I mean, they're so depressing. I come to church to feel better about myself. All right, one person, I'm, I, I will never forget this because the way he put this was so memorable. Uh, one person said to me about that prayer of confession I'm not that bad. And God isn't that mad. Right? Well, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't that bad. But listen to this. And I think it's important that we understand this. What I'm about to say is at the very basic level of our Christian faith, and it's found in both Old and New Testaments, as we heard today in our two readings, being in a relationship with God is not about good people becoming better people. It's not a little fine-tuning, a little uh, polishing here and there, a little tune-up, and then we're good to go. I mean, if, if that's how you imagine it, then listen to this, please. When we enter a relationship with God, when we make the decision at some point in our lives to follow along as His disciples, when we embrace faith in a personal way and not simply as an intellectual abstraction, however you want to put this, what happens at that moment is that God takes over, right? And not just a small part of us, but all of us. We we, we surrender our entire lives to His will. And so what happens, or or what is supposed to happen, is nothing less than a radical transformation. I love the way C.S. Lewis speaks. Uh, describes this. It's found in his book, Mere Christianity, which we used in an adult education class not so long ago. This is long, but it's good. And this is worth hearing. Imagine yourself, Lewis writes, as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. Uh, He's getting the drains right and stopping leaks in the roof and so on. And, And you know that those jobs needed doing. And so you are not surprised. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Right, Throwing out a new wing there, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The word I learned to describe all of this, and it's a word we should all add to our uh, Christian vocabularies, is sanctification. This business of of being made holy. And and this is different, I have to say, this process is, is different from the process of being saved. I mean, this is different from coming to faith. This is what happens after you've made that decision to follow along as a disciple. This is what happens after your baptism. This is what happens after you've confessed your faith in a power greater than yourself. And, and you know, you may have thought that that was the hard part. <laughs> the, the step that you never thought you could take. You may even have been proud of yourself for having come aboard you're thinking that now you've made it and the hard work is behind you. And I am here to tell you this morning, sad to say, that the hard work has just begun. What happens, and C.S. Lewis says this as well as anyone I know, what happens is that a makeover project begins, and even though you might wish it happened overnight or you know very, very quickly, it takes a long, long time. Uh, you may not want to hear this. I, I am now in my fourth or fifth decade of reconstruction. right? And, and from what I can see, there's a great deal of work still to do. And I occasionally don't like it very much. In fact, I hate all of the dust and the chaos that goes along with a construction project. But my transformation is an ongoing thing. And to be honest with you, there is no end in sight. Some days I want to fire the contractor. And, 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 and bring in someone who is a little more to my liking. But then I realize that I am not in charge of this project. My life, and this is important for me to say too, my life was purchased at a great price. And the contractor is not going to accept any old results. He wants me to be the best me that I am capable of being. And you too. All of us. I mean, the contractor is determined that in the end, we become new people. And as the uh, New Testament puts it, new creations altogether. I remember, uh, I mean, I somehow missed uh, that part when I was a teenager and and decided to give my life uh, over to God. And I thought that was the hard part. I thought when I made that decision, I would be so happy. <laughs> and I was for a couple of days. And 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 now I realize, to go back to the, the potter and the clay image, I now realize that God has been hammering on me and squeezing me ever since. I'm a bigger lump of clay than most of you, and so it requires more work. Christians have argued back and forth over the years about whether or not uh, moral perfection is possible in, in this life. And if you're a Methodist or if you have some Methodism in your, your background, then you probably think it's possible to arrive at some point, uh, to achieve the goal. And uh, if you grew up in a tradition like the one where I spent my childhood, then, then you were taught it's never possible <laughs> to achieve uh, moral perfection in, in this life. We, we, we don't achieve it until we die. And that may sound a little discouraging, but I don't mean for it to be discouraging today, and I'll tell you why. I mean for it to be realistic. Most of us have a lot of rehab work to do. I'm sorry if I'm the first person to point that out to you. If you've ever worked on an old house, then you know that the project is always going to take longer and cost more than you ever dreamed possible. You pull up a few boards and then you think, oh, the dry rot goes farther than I thought it did. And then you wind up replacing the whole floor, or the whole wall, or the whole roof. Right? In fact, you begin to, to realize that, there was, that, that it was, wasn't made out of very good quality lumber to begin with. Right? And it all needs to be replaced, as painful and as expensive as that may sound. A couple of Sundays ago, I was sitting in, in church and I was doing what you are doing right now, except uh, that I don't get to do it very often. Uh, a few times each year, I get to sit and, and listen to someone else, and I have no responsibility for anything. I don't think about when I have to stand or sit. I just wait for somebody to tell me. And uh, I love it. <laughs> There's a, and I sat near the door, right? <laughs> I don't know why, but in case I had to make a quick exit or it was close to the coffee hour, I always sit near the door. Anyway, uh, I heard a really good sermon from someone I have known for um, a long, long time, and among other things, he said that dying and rising is not just a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but a daily occurrence. We are always dying and rising. Every single day, a little piece of our old self dies or is put to death, and every day we have to let go of something that we thought was so terribly important. And then we make the discovery that we are raised up again. We are given new life and a new opportunity. And I was sitting there thinking uh, what you are probably thinking, uh, okay, I get that, but where is he going with this? And, and and that's when he said something I think I should have already known, and maybe I did know this, but I heard it in a wonderful new way on that Sunday morning. He said that all of that dying and rising, that daily experience of doing the painful work of life day in and day out is a preparation for the end of our lives. When death finally does come for us. Because when it comes, he said, and and for some reason I needed to hear this, we will be ready. We will have found the rhythm of dying and rising and so one last time, At the end of our lives, we will die only to be raised again, this time to a life of unimaginable richness and beauty and goodness. And when he said that, I confess that I had this sudden rush of tears in my eyes because it's not often that someone talks to me that way from the pulpit. It's not often that someone says, Doug, your life here is temporary. It's, It's not often that someone reminds me of my mortality. But church is a good place for us to remember that we are practicing every day, every single day for a life still to come. So all of this dying and and, and rising that we are doing, which I hate, to be honest with you, and I'm guessing you do too, all of it serves a larger purpose. We are being made ready to be welcomed by the God who loves us. And somehow, I want to end with this, Somehow that thought helps to make the daily headaches of renovation seem bearable. Will you pray with me? Let us pray. Lord, as difficult as it is to hear, we thank you for this message because it puts our lives into perspective. All the dying and rising that we face each day is a training for us for one day meeting you. We pray that somehow we may internalize this truth, we may put it to use, so that we may uh, understand what you are doing in our lives so that when that day comes, we are indeed ready uh, to meet you and to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.